1: Last week, you began to look at the doctrine of creation, and we're just going to continue with that. I must tell you that this is absolutely one of my favorite theology topics. I love talking about creation. I especially love what we're going to look at the next few weeks, which is uh, that we're here. Not next week, as you know, but next few weeks we're going to be talking the relationship between science and faith. Uh, Creation, evolution, evidences uh, for creation. We're going to talk about the importance of creation in Christian life and in the world view. Um, This is not a minor theological topic. This is important. Um, I I just believe that so many of our doctrines and our understanding uh, about the world, about ourselves, about relationships, about redemption, salvation, all of these things, I think, flow out of the doctrine of creation. And last week, Scott covered those things, and I'm not going to go over them. Uh, again in detail, but this is a very important uh, topic. Just by way of personal uh, anecdote, um, when I first began learning how to share my faith, uh, evangelizing with Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, we learned how to share the four spiritual laws, a gospel presentation that Crusade uses, and we talked about the kinds of conversations you'll have when you're witnessing, and they talked about how you must stay to the subject. You can't let people throw in red herrings and get you... Diverted, uh, and so one of them would be like creation evolution. You can't get into that. We need to stick to the topic. I actually no longer believe that. I think it's very important for us to preach the cross, to preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But I'm just telling you that the evolutionary worldview has so crept in to America's thinking that it's very, very you're really starting much more like you used to do on the mission field with just who is God, God the Creator. God the king, God the ruler. And uh, if we don't have that basis, <clears throat> then to start like before laws does, uh, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, you're really not speaking the same language. We don't understand God the same way. So this is a very important topic, and it's one that I delight in teaching, and we're going to talk about it um, tonight, why it's so exciting. Uh, this whole thing started... Uh, Back in the 19th century, in 1831, December 27th, a young British naturalist named Charles Darwin got on the Beagle, a little ship called the Beagle, and what he saw on this voyage gave rise to his convictions about evolution. Now, I believe that Darwin was coming at it first theologically and second as a naturalist. I'll say that again. I think he was coming at his view of origins first theologically and then secondly. Uh, as a naturalist or a biologist. What do I mean by that? I mean he rejected God, he rejected the Scriptures and was looking for something, some explanation for life and found it in his theories. I think that's what it, what it was. In his autobiography, Darwin wrote this. He said, Disbelief crept over me at a very slow rate, rate, but it was at last complete by the time he got on the beagle. I can hardly see how anyone could wish Christianity to be true you hear that? I can hardly see how anyone could wish Christianity to be true. For if so, my father, brother, almost all my best friends will be everlastingly punished. And this is a damnable doctrine. Well, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about God's judgment of the world being a damnable doctrine and extended uh, that out to, um, to Christianity as a whole. He doesn't. He can't imagine why anyone would want it to be true, and so he goes on this naturalistic voyage, and he starts to observe the the uh, beaks of finch birds and other type things, and develops his theory of natural selection. Uh, Christianity has wrestled with it ever since. We've struggled with how we, as believing people, uh, can understand creation, can understand the biblical account, Genesis chapter one and two, and not be, you know. Uh, head-in-the-sand ignoramuses who can't relate to what's really going on in the world. We've struggled with this. And so you know in 1925 we had the phenomenon called the Scopes Monkey Trial. How many of you heard have heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial? A number of you have. How many of you have seen Inherit the Wind? You know that movie Inherit the Wind? You've got to see that movie. That's a masterpiece. All right? It's terrible, but it's a masterpiece. Basically, it's about the Scopes Monkey Trial. And... Uh, just about uh, fundamentalist religion. The, the idea is that John Scopes was a, was a biology teacher in Tennessee, and Tennessee, under the influence of fundamental Christianity, had made teaching evolution in schools to be illegal. And so this man uh, decided to challenge that law and taught evolution uh, in a small town, Dayton, Tennessee. And so he taught it and pretty soon he was brought up on charges of teaching evolution and the ACLU got involved. I bet you wondered, you know, I didn't know they existed back then. Oh, they existed. They've been around a long time. And they hired the most uh, expensive and best known trial lawyer in the country, Clarence Darrow, who came in and just... uh, ripped to shreds William Jennings Bryan who was the lawyer for the prosecution the prosecution of course uh, the ACLU guide uh, Clarence Darrow was the lawyer for the defense he was defending uh, John Scopes and uh, he was guilty as charged no question that he was uh, uh, teaching evolution and he ended up paying some minor minor uh, penalty or or, uh, some minor thing but really what was on trial was the law itself and really the whole state of Tennessee was on trial and, uh, it was, uh, it was a debacle. There's no question about it. Because William Jennings Bryan was a great politician, a great leader, and an orator. But he was really not a very good theologian. And really was not able to give good biblical answers for such basic questions as where did Cain get his wife? Uh, and Jonah and the whale, Clarence Darrow used to just say, well, I could as easily believe that Jonah was swallowed by, his, by a whale as believe that. He used to say this kind of unbelieving things. It was very tragic because under the pressure of the trial, William Jennings Bryan allowed himself to be put on the, on the witness stand as a, as a witness for the Bible. And I mean, this is unheard of. The prosecuting attorney on the witness stand and being cross-examined and just ripped to shreds by Clarence Darrow as he could not answer even some of these basic questions, biblical questions. And he died, I believe, about two days later in Dayton, Tennessee. Died right there. Um, It was the end of his life. He was a candidate for President of the United States, was defeated by Woodrow Wilson. He uh, had a distinguished career. He was Secretary of State of the United States. Um, But he just wasn't a very good Bible scholar, sadly came from an essentially fundamentalist worldview and saw it very much like a Daniel in the lion's den situation where you could go and defend Christianity against these uh, pagans coming in. But one thing that he was right about, William Jennings Bryan was right, was the importance and significance of creation and the danger and threat of evolution. He was right about that. And we've been kind of reeling or dealing with it ever since. Uh, About every, at least once a year, Time Magazine does an evolution cover story. Have you noticed that? It's not like we're finding new things. I mean, well, they're always finding bones in, in, the, in the ground all the time. They're finding bones. But it's like some new way of understanding evolution and all that. Well, come on. I mean, we know what's going on. They're indoctrinating us. They're, they're continuing to, to teach us so that we would be ashamed of our biblical faith. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that tonight. This is a very, very vital and I find it actually very entertaining study. Because I think that science is putting one over. I think the devil is putting one over on the country. There is very, very poor scientific evidence for evolution. We're going to talk about that uh, in our study over the next few weeks. So take your outline and let's look. We're going to be talking tonight and over the next few weeks about the relationship between Scripture and the findings of modern science. And Basically, first of all, we're going to say that when all the facts are rightly understood, there will be no final conflict between Scripture and Natural Science. That's the name of a book, by the way, No Final Conflict, and Francis Schaefer wrote it. And Schaeffer gives seven options or possibilities for wrestling through this issue, having to do with creation in the book of Genesis and these things. I do not buy into all these seven. They're just logical possibilities for answering it. Some of them, I think, can be refuted biblically. But I'll just read them because it shows the... Uh, the various uh, ways that people can understand Scripture and begin to answer these things. There is the possibility that God created a grown-up universe. What do we mean by that? It was created looking old. That's possible. We're going to talk about that. It was created looking old. What would be evidence, biblical evidence for that? Well, think about Adam and Eve, for example. Adam Adam was created as a fully lingual, intelligent human being. He didn't have to study language, whatever language they spoke. Some say it was Hebrew. I had to study Hebrew. I had to work at it. All right? But if it was Hebrew, he didn't have to work at it. He just had it. you know, uh, Instantaneously lingual um, and fully grown as a human being. And so also Eve created fully grown out of Adam, a part of Adam's body. So they say, well, by analogy then, the universe also could have sprung into existence fully grown, giving evidence of having been around for billions of years. Um, that's one possibility there's problems with it but I' and I'm not going to assess these right now. I'm just going to tell you the various ways people have dealt with this. Secondly there is the possibility of a break between Genesis 1 and 2 or between 1 uh, two and 1 three. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1 and see if you can see what this means. I guess I didn't bring my Bible up here. Oh well now ah, here's one the Lord provided. All right Genesis chapter 1. Uh, verses 1 uh, through 3, says, says, uh, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and uh, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And so the, the uh, theorists here posit perhaps some kind of a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. God created the heavens and the earth, but there was no light. All the separating and the work that he's doing in the six days of creation happened later, but all the raw materials were were created first, perhaps millions of years before he starts doing all the work uh, that uh, occurs. Once light comes in, you have the evening, and the morning, the first day. Again, I'm not going to assess these right now. We'll talk about it, but this is what they say. The idea then would be that God took the universe and slapped it down on the uh, potter's wheel, slapped it down and then began to shape it. And there was a gap between the slapping down of the raw materials and the actual shaping and working he does on the earth. And so the gap would either be between verse uh, 1 and 2 and verse 2 and 3. There's problems with it. I'm not going to tell you what they are right now, but that's uh, what some people do. So therefore, you would have a very old universe, but very young life on the old universe. All right, uh, That does not solve the problem of evolution, however, as you can see. And we'll talk more about that. Number three, there is the possibility of a long day in Genesis one this would be the day age theory that the word Hebrew word yom can mean era or a or day like in in Abraham's day such and such it means in the era when Abraham was alive that kind of thing problem with that I I told you I wasn't gonna assess it yet no we will get to it Uh, (laughs) stick to your what you said you're gonna do okay number four there is the possibility that the flood affected the geological data It is possible that Noah's flood, the flood during the age of Noah, radically affected the surface of the earth, radically affected the atmosphere, radically affected everything that scientists use to study geology and life and all these things were significantly, radically affected by Noah's flood. Okay. Number five, there is the use of the word kinds in Genesis 1 and that it may be quite broad and that we're going to talk about the... the, uh existence of kinds and how there is genetic variation within kinds we can discuss that number six there's the possibility of the death of animals before the fall that's controversial but some people say that that is possible you would have to have that you would have to have that if you're going to have theistic evolution got to have it all right they go together and we'll, we'll talk about why that is but you've got to have the death of animals uh, before the fall Then number seven, where the Hebrew word bara is not used, there's a possibility of sequence from previously created things. So uh, what this would imply is that the Hebrew word bara is created from nothing, but then God shapes or works with stuff that's already there, and that would be a different idea. Those are seven possibilities that Francis Schaeffer uh, gives us. Now, I'm going to begin talking about how we can think about or should think about science as a whole. I think there's a few seats here. I don't know. Come on in. Are there any? One there, one there. Okay. Back there. Okay, good. How can we and how should we deal with science? And I feel that you know my own experience. Uh, I went to MIT. I I love science. I enjoy I enjoy going to going to a technological institute. People come from all over the world to study there. Um, people who love science. People who might even be said uh, to worship science. They revere it like a god almost. And uh, I mentioned recently in one sermon about how you walk through the courtyards at MIT and you see the names of these scientific greats etched up in the walls there, Copernicus and and Galileo and and, uh, Newton and all these greats. And so there's this sense of awe and wonder. Uh, I saw an ad in my alumni magazine there You know people ask me do they have sports at MIT oh they have more sports than they have at any other university we're just not any good at it we just lose (laughs) all the time Um, we do have a club football team for example that we play other club football teams and um, so not not very good but there's a you know there's a life uh, there at at, uh, you know at MIT and there's all kinds of things but in the alumni magazine there was a picture (laughs) of a football player and it's talking about MIT and it said Heisman Trophy winners zero Nobel Prize winners, 56. <laughs> so that's what they pride themselves on. We, I mean, we don't do football well. We do it, but not well. But uh, we do Nobel Prize winners. That's what we do. So there's a lot of pride there. There's a lot of, of you know, arrogance in some cases. And there's a lot of great things that are happening there. I like to read that technological magazine just to find out what's going on with super fast computers or little microfibers, uh, polymer fibers that act like uh, muscle fibers, and you can replace muscles and all that. It's amazing what people are doing it really is and and when you read that you read that magazine you see you know like 10 technologies cutting edge technologies that are going to change the way we live and you read these things and you think I understand a little bit more of what God said about the Tower of Babel when he said nothing will be impossible for them that's God's assessment of our capabilities all right now it's not literally true that absolutely nothing is impossible as we studied in the uh, attributes of God there are many things that are impossible for us but it's God's general assessment of our capabilities uh, that's why he confused the languages, because uh, evil was going to take over everything too too rapidly. There wouldn't be time for the development that he intended with the calling of Abraham and all those other things. So uh, um, technology is important. And I, I remember studying the Tower of Babel and, and thinking uh, about how God in the phenomenological language says... You know, they're building a tower up to heaven. Let us go down and see the tower that they've made. And how it struck me what was going on there because it's really, they say this is mythology, but this has nothing to do with mythology. This has to do with, yes, there is nothing restrained from us. We can do anything, but we still can't reach heaven. Okay? God's got to come from all the way down, all the way up there to see this puny human tower that we're making. Because the very thing we're studying and all that, God created it all and understands a billion more times about those things than we ever will. He he thoroughly understands, so we will never reach him by our wisdom and our intellect. So I think science is a wonderful thing and I, I think it really I think Christians should study the physical universe. We should study it to worship the God who made it but not to worship the stuff itself. And that's the whole problem. I think that evolution is a prime example of idolatry, of worshiping the physical created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. It's a great example of idolatry. So how are we going to come at science? First of all, we should come at it with humility. Come at it with humility. What do I mean by that? Well, number one, our knowledge of both Scripture and science is limited, isn't it? It's imperfect. So if there's some kind of conflict between science and the Bible, I can assure you that we have lack, a lack on both sides. We don't understand the physical universe properly and we don't understand the Bible properly. There's, there's a limit in both areas. And so if there's a problem, a gap or a struggle that we may have harmonizing science with the Bible, I can assure you there's a problem on both ends. We don't understand science properly. We don't understand the Bible properly. Okay, having said that, so what, I, what I'm getting at with that is we've got to be humble then. We've got to come at it even if you are a Nobel Prize winner, that we don't even know our own field all that well. I mean, it's just just a, a granule of what God has put into that area or that topic. It's really overwhelming how much there is to know. I remember inspecting fire extinguishers at MIT and going into their reject Uh, library book area where they just a repository where they just keep old books that have become obsolete and the ceiling was something like 20 feet high and it just went on it took about 15 minutes to walk in that basement area from one end to the other books everywhere they weren't even cataloged they were just stacked up so i'd pull out a book it'd be 500 pages and it'd be on some topic i'd never heard of in my life uh it's just amazing amount of stuff there is to know And so, you know, you look at that and you say, okay, we've got to be humble. We don't even know our own science very well, even if you spend your whole life studying it. And number two, we don't know the Bible that well. The more I study, the more I know that that's true. Jesus said to the Sadducees concerning their problem on resurrection, you are in error because you don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. Now, that is an absolutely true statement. Our errors come because we don't know the Bible or the power of God. And so, on both sides, we have to be humble. We don't know the Bible, and we don't know science very well. Secondly, principle of non-contradiction. Apparent conflicts between evidence coming from the physical universe and Scripture cannot finally exist if God is the author of both. Do you see that? You can't, in the end, have a contradiction between science and the Bible as long as they're done properly. All right? You can't. Why? Because we believe as Christians that God is, in fact, the author of both and that he did make the physical universe and he did make the scriptures and if there is something way off if you just cannot reconcile evolution with the scripture okay it must be that something's wrong with one of those two ways of understanding we've got to find you can't ultimately have a contradiction if god is in fact the author of both i'm going to argue that it's evolution that's way off and i'm going to say that we've been duped and there's you know that people are sucked into this way of thinking through research dollars and grants and all kinds of other things, and what I call the emperor's new clothes phenomenon. Okay, we'll get into that. But but I, I, I what I'm saying just basically now is you can't ultimately have a gap. There's no gap in heaven. All right, they, there is a total harmony between the physical universe and the Word of God up there. So therefore, we should come at it with a certain fearlessness. You know what I'm talking about we should we should have a certain fearlessness in our investigation of both scripture and of science why do I say that well it's not been the history of fundamentalist religion this fearlessness it's really been quite the opposite we'll stick with the Bible and let the world have the world it's their stuff and they would ridicule academics they would ridicule people that went to MIT and all that and they'd say we're the spiritual ones and they really did start looking backward they were disengaged they, they retreated from the world and from scientific inquiry and as a result, they gave over, sadly, to unbelievers the thing we should be doing, which is studying the physical universe to give glory to God. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We shouldn't have abandoned the turf. We should have just played better on the field. And so we have to be fearless in our investigation of the physical universe <clears throat> and also Scripture. They're not going to dig up anything out of the earth that's going to destroy, destroy the Bible. Okay? They're not going to find anything. Be confident about that. And and the more you start to look into what they have done to establish evolution, the more you see it to be what it really is—the con game that you know. uh, Every ever since the Piltdown Man and all that, it's been a con game. You wouldn't believe how small the bones are, out of which they get the whole, uh, you know, reconstructions of our ancestors. It's amazing. How did you go from that to this? Well, we'll talk about all that. Okay, creativity. All right, but we should be fearless. We should. um, you know, I'll tell you this, if they can find Jesus' body, I will stop being a Christian. And Paul would have too. He said, if you can prove me that the resurrection never occurred, then I wasted my life because uh, Christianity is gone. But will they find the body of Jesus? You tell me. No, they will not find the body of Jesus. Besides which, how would you know? I mean, you know, after all this time, they were talking about how um, the, the hill of skulls where Jesus was crucified was called that because... Uh, Adam's skull was there. I wonder how you would ever know that that was Adam's skull. I mean, oh, that's another question from that time. All right, now what I want to do is instill a suspicion of science based on the scientific method itself. I want you to be suspicious of science, not suspicious of Scripture. They want you to be the other way around, don't, don't you? Science is science, but that's just Scripture. No, we, we can never think that way. The Scripture's clearer than science will be. What's going to end up happening is in so many of these inquiries, we're going to get to the top and find that God's Word already was there. After we've done all this laborious climb we get there and find God's Word was already there. I'll give you a great example. Uh, during the Scopes Monkey Trial, they, uh, there was a, a, a ridiculing of the concept of Eve being created from Adam's rib. How could you make a whole human being out of one portion of another person's body? Well, we are now advanced enough not to ridicule that anymore. How much, per, how much of a person's body do you need for cloning, for example? All right. Now, I don't believe that cloning can occur yet. I don't think the t- technology is there. And the ethical problems are horrendous. But I'm just saying we know that all you really need is the genetic print. Right? Well, they didn't know that back in 1925. So ridicule away, laugh away. You find out after 75 years, the scripture was already there. All right? And I think more, the more you study, the more you see that. So I think the suspicion and the burden of proof and the onus should be on science if you're a Christian. all right? And I'll tell you what I mean. First of all, the nature of the scientific method plus the explosion of knowledge. What do I mean by that? Well, first, warning. Science is an ever-building, constantly-changing, and very human thing. If you don't believe that, all you need to do is read like technology review from MIT or whatever, and just study the history of science and you see how consistently you get these major paradigm shifts of whole sciences. Like physics is a great example. Uh, A great example is in physics. For the longest time from Newton until the beginning of the 20th century, pretty much they, they, they they, they said that Newton had it all figured out. That Newton's laws of motion covered everything. The problem was, That they were starting to notice through astrology and better uh, telescopes and all that that starlight bent or something around the Sun at a greater rate than they could ever expected a greater margin of bending all right and they couldn't figure it out how gravity and light and all that worked out till who came along Einstein and Einstein starts talking about relativity and all of a sudden physics changes radically changes So if you had been a physicist living in 1875 and you had said, well, there's still huge areas of understanding the cosmos that we we haven't come to yet, they would laugh laugh you to scorn. Newton has it covered. It's been proven. Yeah, it's been proven at low velocities, but once you get up toward the velocity of light, then you start having problems. That's called relativity. So what I'm talking about, that's a very good example of a huge paradigm shift that came along suddenly. Science is doing that all the time. It's changing all the time. And why? Because it's a complicated universe we live in and our knowledge is finite. I think it's also part of just the death penalty that we have. We live a short amount of time, right? So we study something and then we die. You become expert and then you become infirm and you die. And you try to transmit what you learned into writings and articles and books and then you're dead. And who reads what you wrote? C.S. Lewis said, it's no big deal to get published. It's just hard to get people to read what you wrote. That's the hard thing, you know. <laughs> So, I mean, you're you're publishing and then you die. And and so God's given us 70 or 80 years and then we're gone. You know, I bet you Adam was a better scientist at age 920 or whatever than many of us, you know, just from being around and studying things. So constantly science is changing. Secondly, all science is built on work done by other people, isn't it? And they'll they'll tell you that. They'll say, I stood on the shoulders of greats. You know, I came along after Isaac Newton and, and his work. I built on what he did okay what that means is you weren't there when it was done and that's especially true now that we have the information or technology explosion we have the internet and stuffs just moving faster and faster all the time so I think you start to realize I cannot be an expert in any field you know even the field in which I make my money even the field in which I I work there's just stuff being done by people all over the place all the time so you only have so much time in a day so you're going to take people's word for it a lot, aren't you? I mean, you have to. There's, it's just the practical limitations to what you can do. You can't go reinvent the, the amino acid experiment done by Stanley Miller. You just got to take his word for it that he did it rightly and he interpreted the data properly and all that. You just have to accept it. And then you read it and then you build up a, uh, what we would call in, in the Bibles a theology. They're building up a science bit by bit, block by block. But is every block sound? We couldn't, we couldn't test it. We didn't know, is the structure accurate? So, so all I'm telling you to do is just be, be suspicious of the whole structure because it's a very human thing. You weren't there when they were taking their data. You weren't there when they drew their conclusions from the data. There's just a limit to it. Could it be that like Darwin, their worldview is influencing their interpretation of the data? Could that possibly be? I think it is. And so we have to take their conclusions and assume that they did all these things on the on the up and up. Stanley Miller's uh, amino acid experiment is a great example. He went right to the weak point of evolution. Do you know what the the weak point of evolution is? What is the weakest point?
0: I think that, the, that it's stuff going away rather than coming, In other words, rather than it being uh, coming about. that it's really. Away. In other words, stuff
1: is becoming less complex right. all the time, rather than more complex. That is true. But uh, I'm going to take that and apply it to what I think is the weak link. What is the weak link? Spontaneous generation. Spontaneous generation. Can life come out of non-living stuff? And, and no, it can't. And and you know what's so interesting about that? <laughs> I've got this textbook. We're going to have fun when we look at this textbook. This, I bought this for about two bucks at the library sale, um, and it's a secular biology textbook with great pictures and, and just an interesting approach. And it, I, Well, we'll get to it. But at any rate, um, you know, basically it, did, it went over all the spontaneous generation experiments and just ridiculed them and ends up with the same conclusion, namely that life can come spontaneously out of non-living stuff. That is the weak link. Well, what did Stanley Miller do? We'll talk about it later. At any rate, um, it's it's dishonest science. It's not real science, all right? And we weren't there in the lab, and oh, they've created life. I don't know if you remember back then. It was a long time ago, but there were headlines. Life has been created out of nothing in Listen, far, far from it. So the nature of the scientific method and the explosion of knowledge means you need to be suspicious of science because it's a structure built with faulty building materials. Do you see what I'm, t- I'm saying? Be careful about it. Secondly, the nature of the human heart. What is the nature of the human heart? Sinful. Wicked. Okay, we've been studying theology now for a semester. We've been talking about the doctrine of God and Trinity and all that. What does the natural human heart do with information about God? We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's exactly what it says. Romans 1, 18 through 23 For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. <laughs> Verse 22. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Isn't that what we're talking about here? They claimed to be wise, but they actually were fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and Reptiles. That's evolution, I think. It's a great description of what happens with evolution. You want some great examples of suppressing the truth? Look at these two quotes. This is from Richard Dawkins, an arch-Darwinian. This guy is as Darwinian as the day is long. Listen to this quote. Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. Now, don't you think you would get it after a while? I mean, you just spend your whole time studying and there's DNA and there's all this incredible complexity and it's all fitting together so marvelously and you're having to suppress the truth and in righteousness every day you go to work. Boy, that must be tough. You know, I mean, you're just swimming against an avalanche of information that there must have been an intelligent, loving creator behind all of this. All right? All right. It's the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. And then there's Francis Crick, who we'll meet again later with his theory of where life came from. You're going to love that one. Came from outer space on a spaceship. That's what Crick thinks. Okay. All right. Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA. These are intelligent people now. This is a Nobel Prize winner. The double helix, all of that, that's this guy. Intelligent guy. Okay, from outer space on a spaceship, okay? This is what he said. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed but rather evolved. Now, why do they have to work so hard to constantly keep that in mind? <laughs> why do they have to constantly force themselves to remember that this was not created but rather simply evolved? Why? Tell me. Yeah, something- the evidence. Well, I thought scientists dealt with evidence. Oh, yes, but they twist it. They subvert it. They suppress it. They're, so don't trust science is what I'm saying. Be very, very careful. Don't say, oh, it's science. What can we do? You know, people say, well, it's just theology. It's not like geology or something so secure. Oh, my goodness. Ge- geology is a great example of how people have taken the evidence and suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. All right, now let's talk about The Emperor's New Clothes. Do you know what I'm talking about that story? I think they recently made a movie about it. It's a, story by, it's a children's story by Hans Christian Andersen. Somebody remember the story, you know what it is about? Yeah. Um uh, Taylor comes and he has he says he has this great cloth and um he decides he's going the king has to have the special clothing and and he only people that um really have a I forget what the they're competent. Or, uh, Because he wouldn't want to be found incompetent for his job. Okay. Other people start to say, oh, yeah, they think, well, eventually he supposedly gets this gorgeous outfit made and he goes prancing down the city streets with nothing on. And this little kid goes, he doesn't have any clothes. He just points to him and said, hey, he's not wearing anything. <laughs> And and see, it's just a great, great parable because what it is is this statement is made. If you're wise, if you're competent, you'll be able to see the outfit. Oh, I want to be wise. I want to be competent. It takes a little child that doesn't care what anybody thinks about him to come along and say he's not wearing any clothes. Well, how does that relate to science? Maybe it doesn't. Anyway, um, <laughs> I, this is how it relates. Science is not some flawless, monolithic structure that cannot be questioned. The principle of the emperor's new clothes functions in a huge way. In Anderson's classic story, the adults were told, uh, all told that if you could not see the emperor's new clothes, you were incompetent for the position you held. Everyone began praising the emperor, though he wore no robes at all. So also in science. If you begin to question evolution, what do you think is going to happen to your career? If you start to write about creation and, you know, and your articles are found, where is that going to leave you? you're gonna have a hard time at a lot of levels. First of all, you're just gonna be scorned by your colleagues. Realize just how the scientific world works. You know, if you don't publish, you perish, that kind of thing. If you've got to keep finding new things, you've got to keep developing your concepts. And so much of it is the academic world, the, the academy, giving you accolades, saying this is good work or what he's done, the Nobel Prize would be the pinnacle of that kind of academic accolade, all right? But what if you don't get any of that stuff? Well, you're nowhere. Your, your career is nothing. All right, well, do you think they're going to give or lavish on you any kind of praise if you start coming out strongly for creation and saying that there's no... Of course not. Well, there's more to it than that, though. There's money. How does money fit into that? Are they going to, are they going to pay for your research projects? Are you going to get research grants? No. Conversely, where, where are millions of dollars of research going toward human evolution, especially human evolution all the time? And so there's digs, archeological digs, and experiments and all that, and money is just flowing toward that all the time. And so there is a desire through career pride to do well as a scientist, and you're gonna just start singing from the same piece of sheet music, especially if you don't have a worldview strong enough. And there's a a process of ridicule too that goes on. You go to Duke or whatever, and, and, and the professor starts to ridicule Creation. it takes some courage to stand up and say, yes, but, and then to start to say, there's some problems here, some problems. It takes courage, and not everybody has that. And so be, be suspicious of science. Stephen Jay Gould, former professor of geology uh, at Harvard University, former, formerly the leading popular apologist for evolution, he's now deceased, um, Make uh, he, he made an absolute statement in popular magazine like Time and Newsweek, basically that evolution is unquestioned it is an absolute scientific fact all right so what does that do that's in, it's intimidating isn't it it's a form of intimidation so when that's out there and you get ridiculed you have to have courage to stand up and say yes but there's some problems here this isn't good science well listen to what he wrote this is the, there was a time article cover article august 23rd 1999 that was, by the way, four evolutionary covers ago. Okay, so you can just go collect them all, get a whole set in all of Time's evolution cover articles. Okay, Time also responded to the recent decision at that time by the Kansas Board of Education to remove evolution from the state's public school science curriculum. Okay, so evolution is being uh, taken out. Gould wrote a scathing article, opinion article, Dorothy, it's really Oz. It was really vicious. You have to read it, but it's typical of the ridicule that's, you know. This is what he said. Teaching biology without evolution is like teaching chemistry without the periodic table or American history without Lincoln. He also says that the struggle between evolution and religion is completely unnecessary. No scientific theory, including evolution, can pose any threat to religion. For these two great tools of human understanding operate in complementary, not contrary fashion, in their, listen, totally separate realms. Hmm. Very interesting. Science as an inquiry about facts, about reality. Do you see that factual state of the natural world? Religion as a search for spiritual meaning and ethical values. Is that what we're left? We have no facts, no truth. The Bible doesn't make any statements about physical world. And so he would separate the two. Therefore, he's making two basic arguments. Number one, evolution is an indisputable fact of science, not merely a theory. Do you see that? It's like teaching history without Abraham Lincoln. It's like teaching chemistry without the periodic table. Secondly, evolution and Christianity can peacefully coexist. Now, this is what I'm saying. This is my theory. Number one, should be rejected by all open-minded scientists. Do you see that? That evolution is an indisputable fact of science and not merely a theory? That should be rejected by all open-minded scientists. Both statements should be rejected by Christians. That's what I'm saying. And that's what I'm going to argue for in our time together. I'm only on page two. How can that be? All right, move on. (laughs) Some theories about creation seem clearly inconsistent with the teachings of Scripture. So let's kind of start to clear the table now and get them out of the way. First of all, just purely secular evolution is inconsistent with Christianity. You can't have it. Well, what do I mean by secular evolution? Evolution. Well, any purely secular theory about the origin of the universe is unacceptable. Secular means it does not hold that an infinitely powerful personal being purposely and personally created the universe by intelligent design. That's what the secular view is going to eliminate. The role of a creator, the role of an intelligent designer is removed. It's out. All right, well, that's obviously unacceptable for Christians. I hope so. I mean, you see that, don't you? I mean, that's atheism. All right, for, for example, then things like the Big Bang Theory or the eternal universe, purely materialistic Darwinism, must be rejected. Okay, well, in came uh, a friendly helper called theistic evolution. Okay, it's going to help us out. All right, we, had, we, had, we had a PR problem after the Scopes Monkey Trial, and we didn't want to continue with that. Okay, so isn't there some way that we can harmonize the indisputable facts of science, like evolution, Darwinism, and the Bible can't we get them together somehow and that and we're left uh, what resulted from that was theistic evolution what is what is theistic evolution what does that teach God used evolution to create, evolution to create. so it's like all the same stuff evolution only there's God kind of riding it or governing it all all the way all right and uh, we're going to talk about that especially through Wayne Grudem but um, My initial question about that is, what caused you to do this? Because we're going to start making statements about biblical interpretation as a result, aren't we? We're going to start interpreting Genesis differently. We're going to start interpreting certain passages of the Bible differently. So I'd like to know, now that your exegesis is being affected, what caused it? All right? Because I think that the rules for interpreting the Bible and dealing with Scripture are intrinsic to the Bible. We don't need something external to come in and teach us how to interpret the Bible. So what caused you to do it? And if your answer is science did, what I'm saying is you've put the cart before the horse. You know? You've know, you definitely sold your birthright for, for a bowl of stew. Why? Because we've been talking about science. Now my next question is, when there is a contradiction you cannot reconcile, which of the two is going to give way? Well, what do you think is going to give way? We've already begun the process by doing theistic evolution, haven't we? What do you think is going to yield? Science should, but what will yield? The Bible will yield. We'll start to allegorize Genesis 1, right? We'll start to say that the Apostle Paul didn't really know what he was talking about in the book of Acts when he said, from one man you made every nation of men. We're going to start to mess around with it a little bit. And once you begin that process, that's, that's known, in my opinion, as liberalism. You're then picking through the Bible and some of it is the Word of God and some of it isn't. And what's guiding you now is, is science. Science is going to tell you what is and what isn't. Rationalism then has become your authority, not the Bible. And that's the essence of liberalism. When your mind, when it makes sense to you and you keep it and it doesn't make sense to you and you reject it, you know the Bible's no longer authoritative. So right from the outset, we have a problem with theistic evolution, don't we? Because nothing internal to the Bible made us do it; it was science that made us do it. All right. Well, let's see some more problems. There are some objections to theistic evolution. First of all, the purposefulness of God's created work versus the randomness of evolution. The essence of God's creative activity is purpose in creating everything He does. In everything He does, the essence of evolution is random mutations, isn't it? Isn't that what evolution is? It's random mutations, things, natural selection. So I really, actually, don't know how they could go together. I think you're, you're your standard evolutionist would say that's impossible that's not evolution whatever you're teaching it isn't evolution if god's guiding it all right the scripture speaks of intelligent design genesis 124 and god said let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds livestock creatures that move along the ground and wild animals each according to its kind and it was so that's genesis 124 but evolution speaks of random mutations And so I love what Grudem writes here. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And after 387,492,871 attempts, God finally made a mouse that worked. (laughs) Really? What about all those other failed mouses or mice along the way? You know? Theistic evolutions are in effect saying this. For them to answer, but God intervened in the process along the way. One no longer has true evolution, as I just mentioned. No secular scientist would call guided pur- purposeful intervention evolution. And if a Christian's going to argue for that, why not simply go for a direct, immediately, immediate creation of a fully functioning mouse right from the start without millions of failed forms up to that transition? You see what I'm saying? What do you need them for? I mean, did God need to do that? Obviously, we wouldn't believe that God would need to you know make a test and then you know another test and then finally end up with a good mouse especially since there's no fossil evidence for this whole transition ah yes that's another topic we'll get to that in a minute alright maybe later scripture secondly pictures God's creative word bringing immediate response God speaks and it is so if you have theistic evolution God speaks and millions of years later it's so do you see that? He speaks, and then later it comes. Psalm 33, verse 6 and 9. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it came to be; he commanded, and it stood firm. Do you see that? He spoke, and it was. He said, "Let there be," and there was. That's how Genesis is written, isn't it? This implies a direct, instantaneous cause and effect. Theistic atheistic evolution posits instead: he spoke, and eventually he guided it to come about. You see how that, that fails. Thirdly, God creating kinds such that living things reproduce according to their kind, macular evolution is not in view. What are we talking about here? All right, first of all, kinds reproduce within their kind. You can tell if something's in the same kind as if it can reproduce with another member of that kind. It's got to do with reproduction. And God linked it to reproduction right from the start. Let them reproduce according to their kinds. And he said the same thing about vegetables and fruit and trees and stuff, right? So it all comes back to this genetic makeup, seeds really. And so as the seed is, that's the kind you have. Now we have noticed, especially since Mendeleev and all that, the study of of genes, how we can kind of mess around within a kind and develop, can't we? You can can have, for example, a navel orange. I mean, navel orange is an anomaly really because at the center of every other fruit, you're going to find what? Seeds. At the center of this, you just find good eating. You know, that's all. And so that's what we were able to develop within the kind. You can improve the sugar content of a sugar beet. You can do that kind of thing. The best proof of all are the various races of human beings. We believe that they all came from one person twice, from Adam and from Noah. So this whole thing's been proven twice. And, And Paul said, from one man, he made every nation of men. But we don't look a lot like each other, do we? There's there's a wide variety of genetic variants capable, and it was all wrapped up in Noah, wasn't it? And in Adam. It all came from his seed. And so apparently there's a great deal of genetic variation possible within the kind. Same thing with dogs, right? Or other types of things. You can get various species. But the question is, can they reproduce with one another? And if the answer is yes, then they're uh, according to the kind. You see that. All right, well, now I've given you a page here out of my lovely biology book. I'll tell you what, the things you can get for two bucks at the, I mean, this is great. And look at all the pictures, and I, I mean, this is as close to irrefutable as you're ever gonna find. I mean, Prentice Hall published this, okay? And so I open up to this whole macroevolution. What is macroevolution? It's an evolution, go ahead. It all, all different kinds came from the same exact thing. That's exactly right. So you have, in effect, a family tree of of life do you see what I'm talking about and you know I couldn't find it I thought for sure they'd give me a tree. I've seen it before but I couldn't find it today and I was so distressed over that I wanted a tree with little tiny squiggly things like amoeba down at the bottom all the way up to you know we're in here somewhere here you know so I, and don't think this doesn't affect people's thinking like you know the National uh, Forest Service you know it talks about the, the most dangerous animal in the woods is what man well you know but we're all animals. We're all from the tree, you see. So anyway, we have this development from one thing, and we're all branching off. What that means is that we've got a problem then along the issue of kinds and reproduction. Do you see that? So I've given you a little chart there, and sadly, the, it didn't come out very well because the key issue here are not the beautiful pictures of the drawings of animals, whether mythological or actual. Okay, what they are, what's really neat here is what the lines. The lines, do you see the lines? I, you probably can't, because our Xerox machine or copier didn't do a great job, but can you, can you see them? And it's okay in a way that they're not there because you of your own imagination can draw your own lines if you'd like. Because <laughs> that's what some artists did, all right? There's no difference, there really is none. So just go ahead, I'm glad that they're light. Draw in any lines you want. Draw in the ones you think are there, draw in zigzag lines, whatever you want. Why? Because right, We start out with this weird looking alligator thing at the bottom. And immediately from that, you get the um, Gila monster. Is that what that is? I don't know. Um, and then that looks like a raptor, I've been told. And then a nose dolphin of some sort. And then a pleosaur. All right. The far out- outside wing, he goes right up to the tortoise without any other species in between. You see that line way out there? So we go from that weird looking thing right up to the turtle. Um, the other way, there's a zigzag line that doesn't touch anything else and goes up to a snake. Do you see that? You see the lines, the zigzag lines. So just draw it in there if you want. Or if you'd rather it end up somewhere else, that's up to you. If you want to draw something else and connect it, you can. Um, you know, we go from the raptor up to some leathery-looking b- bird. Um, and from that to a modern sparrow, could it be? All right, and then far left, you go from the Gila monster to what looks like what we had with Grandad, frankly. Just a little smaller. So Grandad looks a little bit like, I mean, they're about the same. And then Mr. Alligator I mean, it's odd that we went from the raptor back to the alligator again. Do you see that? I mean, the original ancestor looks a lot like an alligator to me, or crocodile, whatever this is. So we went away and then came back. Returned to roots, really, I think is what it is. They came home to roost. But I think that the alligator crocodile on the left and the Gila monster, they look very similar. But you go from that to what? Far left, upper hand corner. A bear. A <laughs> bear. From a, from a reptile to a bear. Okay, so side by side, we have a bear and a bird. Can a bear and a bird mate? Come on now, think about it. How does a little birdie come into the world? How do they come into the world? In an egg, how does a, a little bear come into the world? It's a mammal, they're born like we are. It's similar, you know, there's, we're mammals. And they're side by side developed from the same species. There is no biological evidence for that in the world ever anywhere, except in these charts here. You know, um, And look, they even have a name for it. Do you see that right at the top? Figure 1420. Somebody tell me what they call it. Adaptive radiation. it's uh, as good as another name, I think. I think it's a good name. Adaptive radiation is the process by which many different species develop from a common ancestor. We get the same thing here in these old time life books they have even better charts these are how fishes evolved i like this this is the the picture of fish evolution did you see these a long time ago maybe you didn't but when i grew up i had these things evolution you know it's, it's irrefutable all right what you have here is here's the present year one okay the present and you've got basically you've got the tan line the green line uh you know darker green and then even darker green they all kind of broke off from each other light blue Um, and then another green, and then blue like that. So they're all kind of separate here, but what do you notice back here? What's going on? Do you see? They all converge. See the dotted lines, how they all come back from the same point? We don't have any information about that, but they must have converged. (laughs) So we're going to draw all the dotted lines back here, and we're going to have these very official-sounding eras, the uh, Ordovician, the Silurian, the Devonian, the Mississippian, the Pennsylvanian, the Permian, the... Triassic, the Jurassic. Have you heard that word before? The Cretaceous, Tertiary and all that. And then there's lines, millions of years, 425 million, 405. And I think if I were going to do that I'd make occasionally like some of them prime numbers so that they're not like divisible by 10 or 5 and sure enough, you know, 181 or some of those. They set the line there. It's at 181 million years that we went from the Triassic to Jurassic. What an imagination and you need a lot of imagination because you're going to take a little tiny bone and get a whole species out of it. I mean, you are. You're going to go to a site, you're going to go to a site and you're going to put a whole skeleton together from bones collected over a 50 square mile area. I don't know what kind of bomb blew that guy up, okay? <laughs> but, I mean, it's just unbelievable. It'd be like getting, if you could imagine, 20 jigsaw puzzles and mixing them all up, okay? And then taking them out and trying to solve the puzzle with no picture. And they do it. Isn't that... I, I just think we need to be in awe of these scientists in what they are able to do. Why am I ridiculing this? Because I think it's been the other way far too long. All right? We've been ridiculed for our faith. Do you see the emperor's new clothes? Do you see how little evidence there is? And we're going to keep talking because the weak link is where do we get life? Where does it come from? We're going to talk about Stanley Miller's experiment. We're going to talk about all these things. Can it really be 728? But anyway, look at this. Draw your own lines, put your own species in there, do anything you want. But macroevolution, there is no evidence for it. God is a hands-on creator in Genesis. Theistic theistic evolution, therefore, is more hands-off. God is hands-on in the animal world. Psalm 104 24 through 30 It says how many are your works O lord in wisdom you made them all the earth is full of your creatures there is the sea vast and spacious teeming with creatures beyond number living things both large and small there the ships go to and fro and the leviathan which you formed to frolic there do you see the word formed it's the hebrew word yatsar which means to shape or mold or create God formed the Leviathan. Most interpreters think that's that's the whale. Uh, These all look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, do you see that? They are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. So God is intimately involved with his created beings. How do you line that up with theistic evolution and millions of years of development? I mean, that's strange. It doesn't line up with Scripture. God is very hands-on for people, isn't He? Genesis 2.7 The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Job 10.8-12 Your hands shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember that you molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. You gave me life and showed me kindness and in your providence watched over my spirit. That is the God that I worship. Actively, aggressively, sovereignly involved with life. I don't know how you line that up with theistic evolution. And then... uh, Ecclesiastes 11.5, Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. That's a great verse, isn't it? God, God makes these things. And who are we to come along and say, you didn't make it, it evolved? Psalm 139 we've read before. Beautiful. All right, then finally tonight, special creation of Adam and Eve along with corresponding doctrinal matters, original sin, headship and submission, unity of the human race, etc., impossible to reconcile with evolution. I will put my foot here. You cannot posit human evolution and be a Bible believer. It's impossible. You might be able to come up with all the other things. I think it's a stretch, but you can't do it. You can't do it with people. It's impossible because you have to get rid of scriptures and not just scriptures, but key scriptures that teach key biblical doctrines. For example, the unity of the human race. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. The doctrine of original sin. Can you line that up with evolution? No way. Romans 5:12 and following. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. Do you see that? And death through sin. In this way, death came to all men because all sinned. And then it goes on from there. Original sin in Romans chapter 5 cannot be lined up with evolution. The origin of death, again, comes from one man. 1 Corinthians 15. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. What's the parallel being drawn there? On the one hand, we have wh- who? Adam, and death entered through him. And on the other hand, we have Christ as the second Adam, and life comes through him. The, the parallel is destroyed if you have evolution, it's just gone. And then there's marriage. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every every reason? Haven't Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together let man not separate. Jesus arguing from the Genesis 2 record of the origin of marriage. That's where it comes from. And then finally, as we've talked about in our church, male leadership. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.8, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Can you explain that evolutionally? It's impossible. It's just impossible. And so also the 1 Timothy 2 passage, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. She must be silent. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That just cannot be if you've got evolution. Do you see that? There's no way. There was a time that Adam existed and Eve didn't. Isn't that what the Bible teaches? And from that, he derives a conclusion. It falls apart if you have evolution. Do you see that? You just can't have both. All right. None of these New Testament doctrines can be supported if humanity evolved. All of them disappear. And finally, numerous scientific objections to evolution. We'll discuss these more in depth, God willing, the next time we meet. Issues ahead, page 7. Scientific problems with evolution. The origin of life note Francis Crick's theory of panspermia life from outer space we'll talk about that next time you won't want to miss it all right I mean I haven't seen anything so creative yes go ahead yeah some they keep quiet they're kind of they're like Nicodemus you know it's like I don't know I, I maybe there are some that speak but you know it's hard to get a job there I mean if that's what you teach you know Problems with mechanism of natural selection. We're going to talk about that. Existence of certain species and capabilities, like the bombardier beetle. That's exciting. We'll look at that. Darwin's black box. Michael Behe and the problem of irreducible complexity. How do you get complex organs like the human eye, in which every single part must function, or the eye doesn't do anything for the species? How do you evolve up into that? You know, so that one step removed, the eye does nothing for you. How can you then have natural selection? You gotta have a fully formed eye or it does nothing for the, for the species, <laughs> nothing at all. Alan, you probably talked to that. If, you, if, the, if, if any of these things don't work, you don't get sight. You, you don't have, so how do you evolve up into it? That's a problem. And it's not really been refuted yet. They're working on it. Then there's the fossil record and so-called punctuated equilibria. I'm gonna bring this biology book back on punctuated equilibria, all right? That is a wonderful thing. You know why they're talking about, you know what punctuated e- equilibria is? It's like this. Darwin said evolution happens like this. All right? Constant evolution. Always going on all the time. Now, Stephen Jay Gould, who's, as I said, deceased, said, no, it's like this. Okay? Keep going. Eh. One step. Long, 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 long time. Eh. Okay? That's not evolution. All right. What is long periods of stasis where nothing changes and then suddenly species appear. <laughs> That's called creation. I mean, but <laughs> Punctuated equilibria. We're going to talk about that next time. Um, and then the age of the earth, we'll have to get to that. Death before the fall, we'll deal with that. Dinosaurs, the importance of Noah's flood, day age theory, dating techniques I didn't write down. Lots of stuff. So come back in two weeks. Let's close with prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the time we've had tonight to look at these things, and we just pray that you continue to open our minds and our hearts. We thank you, O Lord, that you are, without a question, the great creator of the universe. You are the creator of heaven and earth, and you've made us a promise that someday you'll create a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And I look forward to that, Lord. In the meantime, Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to be good stewards of the creation you've given us. Help us, O Lord, to be witnesses to this lost and dying world that has believed so many lies from the devil. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.